Qualys has brought together vulnerability management and patch management, letting security teams discover vulnerabilities and apply patches immediately, all within a single, unified app. Sign up for a free trial of Qualys VMDR, vulnerability management, detection, and response today at securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys. Keeping up with security issues across thousands of web assets without the right approach to web application security is a daunting task. Get ahead with web vulnerability scanning automation from NetSparker, a leader in dynamic and interactive application security testing known for its ease of use and accurate results. Detect a wide range of vulnerabilities in all legacy and modern web applications. Address security bugs at scale by automating the confirmation process. Automatically prioritize vulnerabilities and assign actionable tickets to the right developers in their native workflows for rapid remediation. For more information on how to scale application security with ease, visit securityweekly.com forward slash NetSparker. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. If you want to stay in the loop, all things Security Weekly, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. You can subscribe to all of our shows on the Security Weekly network, including Security Compliance Weekly, where Jeff Mann is one of the hosts on that show talking about all things compliance, uh, as well as many other shows, securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. We've got a YouTube channel you can subscribe to, mailing list, and join our Discord server. Also, we've got a new streaming platform. We are now streaming on Twitch. If you hit our main website, you can find that in the upper right-hand corner. And I know that because uh, Adrian Sanabria and I spent a little time doing some web development this week, which is really... We had some hilarious conversations. <laughs> We're trying to fix like the most esoteric like WordPress CSS bugs in the website. And we're like, wow, we're just we're web developers right now. Like, I wanted to put a, a, a sticker on my hat that said web developer because I literally wore my <laughs> web developer hat today. And I'm like, I'm really only excited about this because it's going to make me better with web app testing and using Burp Suite. And it was it was a lot of fun, actually, for, for a while. And then I was like, we need to get someone that has web design experience to do this and not us. But... I was going to say, and I went to the dentist this week and I had a week and had a root canal and ooh, it was so much fun. Uh, probably, yeah, about, yeah, about the same experience, I think. <laughs> Anytime you use WordPress and CSS in the same sentence, we probably could pull a WordPress vulnerability. I don't know. I don't usually add them to the show because it's usually some kind of esoteric WordPress plugin that had some heinous uh, vulnerability. Although... This week we do have uh, a major PHP vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, not, I think it was your article, Larry, that had a whole section on how it typically will not impact WordPress because it was in like the next release, like eight dot something yeah. yep. uh, of PHP, and I think the more stable <laughs> versions of seven is where all the WordPress. So are the at. the funny part that I was getting out of that was that article. I'm like, what PHP users need to know about the PHP vulnerability? And at that point, I didn't even know there was a PHP vulnerability. And I'm like, oh, here we go, WordPress again. Turns well, out it was a whole bigger thing than. Whole, uh, but it's a supply chain attack. For oh, like, for oh, sure. I mean, they ran their own Git server, um, yep. and do we know exactly how was it like credential? They they someone hacked their Git server basically, and put yeah. in some code. The way I understand it is, if uh, I could basically they put a command injection in the user agent string at a very high level. Yeah. Yep. So like if your user agent began with Zerodium you could then execute commands through the PHP uh, server. Yeah. Service, I should say. Yep. Yep. Which was only like a couple lines of code. Like, I mean, every article had the diffs on there, and you read it, and you're like, 
a little confused and you read it a second time and you're like, oh, yeah, like I get the gist of it. Like most of us get the gist of it reading it like, oh, yeah, like if I were to do it, it probably wouldn't look all that dissimilar from what they did, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I was looking at this thinking, you know, remember the time when we I thought I would think, you know, I could run a server like that myself and get the security right. And like, hell no. <laughs> move it move it to get but you gotta remember to follow their best practices like multi factor and shit. Otherwise game yep. over mount. Yep. Yeah, you um, gotta protect the auth. But what's interesting, like, is it more in this case it seems with source code management you're almost more secure at certain levels uh, in certain mm -hmm. aspects if you're running in the cloud because you're taking advantage of GitHub or GitLab, uh, you know, the right. services they provide for security. I mean, they're dealing with this crap. They're dealing with attacks at a level we never saw in our own enterprises. I mean, they they got big fat targets on them. And I'm, but you got to listen to what they say to secure it. But I'm, I'm like, let's leverage that expertise and... Hell, it's not that expensive to do it in their services where I've got to pay somebody to run it on my site, even if it's myself. Right. Not free either. Nope, definitely not. I mean, you still got to manage your keys. So there is, of course, a responsibility that falls on you, but you're shoveling a lot of that responsibility off to the cloud provider. Right. Which is interesting. Well, I should get... Go ahead, Lee. Go ahead. But I was going to say, really? about resources, you can ask questions. It's like... It's not just you Googling. You could like reach out to their support organization and say, hey, help. And they got a lot of great checks. I don't know what the, if those checks are built into the service if you run it on your own. But like I know on GitHub, if, if you commit code that has vulnerabilities in libraries and stuff like that, they'll do some checking of that uh, as will GitLab. Yep. So there was that. Not so much one of the sagas we want to talk about, but I want to dig into this. How, how are we gonna? How, how long are we gonna dawdle before we get to the big stories? Of the yeah. <clears throat> so, I guess let's start with Ubiquity, and this was the one I believe uh, that Krebs uh, was breaking. Uh, mm -hmm. Essentially, there was a whistleblower at Ubiquity, which I don't know how big Ubiquity's security team is. But I give props to this person just in reading the story. And, and even if all you know as a listener right now, if you haven't seen the story, that there was a whistleblower at Ubiquity that the article kind of hints towards they worked on the security team. Like how many people on their security team and how uncomfortable is it for that person to work? Which is kind of interesting in the pandemic. All these folks are probably working from home. So like you don't have maybe that level of scrutiny, right? Like if all the security people going in the office that work for Ubiquity... Let's say there's 20 of them. Like, are they all looking at each other going, who was the one talking to Krebs? Like, who was it? I thought it was a, I thought it was a contractor working an incident for Ubiquity. Okay. That could make a little more sense, a little, little more removed from the, the, the situation, right? I don't remember well, where I was. Well, Krebs' article says it was a security professional at U Ubiquity. At Ubiquity. So I, I don't know if it matters a whole Yikes. lot. Yeah. I mean, you just put yourself in the shoes of being someone on that team, right? I mean, this is pretty well-used equipment out there in the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. So, like, between Meraki, Aruba, and Ubiquity, that covers most of the market. 
So yeah. kind of kind of a big deal. And, and and arguably ubiquity, you know, more targeted to the prosumer model mm-hmm. uh, for the consumer side. So I think most uh, of us have some form of ubiquity gear in yep. our in our networks, right? Because I think we did a whole segment on this in that. We've done a lot of segments on Wi-Fi gear and talk about ubiquity, right? Uh, and are I, you I'm implying kinda, that ubiquity is ubiquitous? Uh, within <laughs> within security, prof- like nerd level, so like the consumer. So, so was, it's not is, just a clever name. <laughs> it is not right, but so I think like consumers are going to go buy like the cheapest Linksys, Netgear, D-Link kind of gear, okay. right? Like if you're really into it, on the complete other end of the spectrum. You're going to take some off-the-shelf hardware, assemble the components together. You're going to run Linux on it and build your own access points, and that's cool. And I'm, I just, I just haven't had the desire to like go to that level and have enough interest to, to right. be able to do that. So if you're somewhere in between those, I think most people land in ubiquity. This kind of, was kind of yep. I, I've talked about on the show in the past, right? Yeah. And then so go ahead, Jeff. I'm sorry. Uh, there's lots of layers to this, and, and and we could probably spend the whole news segment just peeling this thing apart. Yeah, between this and the FreeBSD and WireGuard story. Um, mm-hmm. you know, do it in whatever order you want, Paul. I, I, you know, and, and my my PCI spin is only going to be to the extent that we have a lot of customers. I have a lot of customers these days, clients. I'm sorry, I'm supposed to say clients. Um, that are relying more and more on cloud services, be it AWS or Google Cloud. I haven't, I haven't yet personally done an Azure client. But perhaps but, also, uh, Jeff. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but also ubiquity. Mm-hmm. I think in certain point of sale applications, I've seen mm-hmm. the point of sale provider that obviously in a retail environment, going to be some kind of Wi-Fi, right? And I'm not talking about like Home Depots right. or Target, like big box retailers no smaller ones right gonna buy a point of sale system and their registers are going to be dispersed throughout and likely have some kind of wi-fi in them or have some kind of you know remote uh card scanner or whatever i've seen ubiquity in those applications yeah Mm -hmm. well like i said there's a lot of layers to this Mm. and that's certainly one what what i'm what i'm getting at though at least something one layer that i would like us to to talk about at some point uh, is that you know so many uh companies are going to the cloud you know putting not just applications uh but infrastructure up in the cloud Mm -hmm. um and there, and, you know, and I, I first was involved with AWS back when I started working at Tenable, mm-hmm. which I'm disturbed to say it was eight years ago at this point. Um, but uh, you know, the, the the allure of of going to the cloud in general, and I'm not picking on AWS specifically, was hey, it's cheaper. You can save a lot of money just put everything in the cloud and not only is it cheaper but all the security liability or the compliance liability goes away Mm. and uh you know and that was sort of the early you know when i was looking at it at tenable is like okay aws as an example is saying yeah we we pretty much got you covered for you know data center physical security nobody can get to your stuff in our in our you know, in our you know data center type of thing, and even though there was sort of a um, an assumption 
that clients signing up for AWS or putting things in AWS were going to be covered for so many things. There was it was very much a uh, read the small print. Make sure you know what you're signing up for, what mm-hmm. you're getting, what you're not getting from a security perspective. Forget, right. Because you know, there's lines. It was, oh, there's, there's levels of responsibility lines. in any kind and of a- cloud service. And AWS has come a long way in terms of, and again, I'm speaking from a PCI context. PCI at least acknowledges, look, if you're putting stuff in the hands of a third party, make sure you have an acknowledged agreement of uh, you know in the context of the all the security requirements within PCI who's doing what don't make yeah. assumptions if you think okay you know whatever it is the requirement is 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 being swept up because you've gone to a third party in this instance a, a cloud provider mm-hmm. make sure that that's understood but there's and also now lee there, lee there's a standard that i can't think of that it, it certifies the level of security for cloud providers i mean FedRAMP yeah. is one thing, but there's another. What is the other standard? I can't think of it now. Oh, oh shit! Um, give me a second. <laughs> and it's well, not just for the well, cloud provider, but it's also for the like the the cloud. Like I'm running my application in a cloud service. I can go for a certain level of certification to say like how secure I am in that cloud. What is that? I didn't, I can't think. Of, I'm just having a mental blank. There's people in their cars and. Jogging and well, stuff that are like screaming <laughs> at us screaming right now. At yeah. While while you're thinking of it, let me let me complete my little my picture mm. and the concern where where this ubiquity thing I think at least in part is yeah no it ties in point. agreed the um you know I'm seeing in the clients I've had in the last year or so you've you've got it you know you've got a retailer a merchant they're they're somebody engaging in commerce and they collect credit card information. So they're on the hook for PCI. But they're e-commerce, so they have their website, their e-commerce site hosted in an AWS environment. And oh, by the way, they've got a, a, a third party that does the application development and maintenance and you know keeps the website up. They're engaging with a, uh, a payment processor uh, like a, like a stripe that provides the you know the checkout the 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 you know the 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 payment function that's separate from the main website potentially um and and it you know so you've got application developers it's a third party uh the checkout the the actual payment function the the transaction function third party it's all hosted in, at a third party uh and then you've got the merchant and then maybe one or two other players and what i'm seeing is okay this can get really confusing really quickly in terms of you know who's responsible for what cuz pci at the end of the day, is asking for basic security, uh, you know, table stakes in, in terms of, you know, is somebody, you know, monitoring, scanning, uh, keeping current the things that are that are being done to present this whole e-commerce application, and it gets very confusing very quickly. Is who's responsible for what? Uh, it, not that it's impossible to sort out, but it, you know, it, it, it's complicated and, and too often I think companies buy into the, the, the promise of, Oh, if I just outsource to a third party, I can wash my hands and right. it, it all goes away. But it, it now, depends so, on the third party too. Cause Amazon, Microsoft, Google, 
are, are one kind of different beast, right? But the way that Ubiquity, in the sense of IoT gear, they very well could be hosted on Amazon, but they've got their own implementation of how they're doing right. cloud security in, in addition to device security. And that seems where it d fell down. Like if you were a merchant, right. for example, and you're so, like, hey, we're going to run Ubiquity, it's Ubiquity's problem for security. Like Amazon's doing, let's just say Amazon's doing the greatest job in the world, but Ubiquity's using it wrong. But then now I'm even yeah. downstream from that, and I'm a merchant that I bought a point of sale system from and it implements Ubiquity. Like, who, who's at fault? What do I need to do? Uh, Jeff, I think that's the, the crux of kind well, of your... Yeah. Uh, well, that's what I'm trying to get at. It, it's mm. it's it, it, Part of it is it, who's at fault. Part of it is who's liable. And that's not always the same entity. Right. And, and, and who and should then, own up then, to what? And it sounds like Ubiquity wasn't owning up to it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the big one out of yeah. this is that Ubiquity's not really owning up to a whole hell of a lot. They're we, trying we to sweep stuff much. under the rug, which is why Whistleblower comes forward and is like, no, like this breach was yeah. Bad. Like we shouldn't have just advised people change their password. We should have enforced people mm -hmm. change their passwords. We should have disclosed way more yep. because attackers were. It sounded like from this article, attackers were all up in their shit. Basically, and, well, I, 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 I want to throw out this. Sorry, Larry. Uh, no, go ahead. Um, I'll shut up and let other people talk. Um, I, I hear what they're saying about bad, but I, I think it's it, it's my interpretation. It's more potential bad. Yes, the hackers were in their shit, but it was more, uh, you know, like we as security professionals see all the bad that could happen because of what mm -hmm. is there. I don't know that it's all necessarily happening or was happening, but it was certainly, oh, my, you know, I mean, 20 yeah. years ago, it was like, oh, my God, I've got root to this, you know, server anything goes you know i'm root you know and try to explain to that to people that have no idea what yeah. that means and, yeah. and full, that, full read right access to ubiquity right. databases at aws yep. and which you could potentially mean that uh you've got read write access on every single one of their remote management products yeah i'm guessing right. but ubiquity right. was saying it's a third party to ubiquity so what? Jeff, this is why I love your example, right? Because you've got Amazon as the cloud provider. You've got Ubiquity right. as a customer to Amazon. I'm a customer of a point of sale system. That point of sale system is a customer to Ubiquity. Ubiquity then is a or a partnership of some kind or customer to a third party. Mm -hmm. You're spot on, Jeff. Like who whose responsibility is this? Who needs to own up to it? What are who, who what is going on? <laughs> Well, well and this is this is the essence of what the the issues are, what the potential issues are, and and it's it's not really a technical security yeah. issue. I mean, we can we can drill down and understand exactly what happened and where and, and who was on the hook for it, but translating that into who's ultimately responsible or liable, and 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 and, and there's a difference also between who's liable and the court of public opinion, mm -hmm. because right. you know. We're we're talking about ubiquity. We're not talking about somehow AWS let you know one of you know one of their customers and all their S three buckets, you know, gave up all the access to it. Yeah. I mean, maybe it was maybe I'm not saying it is, but maybe you know maybe it was something on AWS's side. Maybe it was something on a ubiquity third party side. to ubiquity. Yeah. I mean, we pointed oh, so out some ubiquity vulnerability. Who was the sand? It was the sands person. John Gernflow. Yeah. They came on and was talking about ubiquity. And yep. we'll, the founder of Ubiquity left Cisco or something, right, to create Ubiquity? Or there was oh. some story like, that I had not had the background to. I forgot. The founder, he talked about the story behind the founder of Ubiquity. And look, Ubiquity makes great gear. We all, we all love Ubiquity, yeah, yeah, embrace, yeah. Their, embrace their technology. 
I think it is uh, them to embrace security now. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, I and I think we've all kind of had those red flags like eh, some security things like, you know, here and there. Uh, there's, with some, there's some issues with this. Like if think about <laughs> what they had access to outside of like, okay, yeah, we can change all of our passwords. They, you know, we can reset those. We can put two factor on. What about the downloads for firmware? Who's checking the backend code? If is there anything been changed in source code? Do we have firmware that we have to worry about now? Do we need to be flashing, looking at our updated flashes? Like, what's the long term persistence if this right. is how they're dealing with security? Like, there's a lot of ramifications that uh, are making me like I'm bought into the ecosystem. So now, how do I mm, yeah. handle the threat landscape from a supply chain? Yep, I think Steve, it's me, and I've got access to ubiquity. I'm going after where that feature is called in ubiquity that lets you grab packets. Yeah. What is that feature called? I, I haven't bought it yet. But there's a feature where like you can have your access points essentially grab traffic. And like Cisco and Meraki like all had this and we used to use oh, it for um, troubleshooting. But in Ubiquity it's like, a feature. It's, a, it's Airwatch, it's uh Air, yeah. Air, Air Beacon. I'm trying to remember what Ubiquity uh, Ubiquity uh, calls it something different. You're right. Cisco it was Airwatch. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And you could get the raw 80211 yeah. frames as well as the TCP IP yeah. frames uh, mm -hmm. from it. That to me is like basically Net, Netf I hack Flow? Ubiquity's database, I get access to customers, and now I can sniff all their Wi Fi networks. Net, Net, that's, Netf bad. that's the worst case yeah. scenario. It, in, in any case, some th some things that you know drive me kind of nuts about this one is you know, I, I use Ubiquity at home. Mm -hmm. Right? Oh, go change passwords. I have for like a long time. And then, too, of course, yeah. you know, what happens is you go into the interface, it's like, oh, there's updates available for your access points. Always updates. And you know what I immediately want to do? I want to I want to press the update button, and I realize at the time I'm on a Zoom call for work when I'm doing this. The kids are distance but, learning. And yes. the kids are both distance learning and I'm like, um, We talked about that with, what was his name? John? John Gordflow. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so there's so that. Larry, so are I'm you not, saying you're, you're not patching on a regular basis? No, because well, like I got a maintenance window I got to yeah, live ex with. Exactly. <laughs> and right now, yeah, I got a maintenance window and like if it was just me and, you know, Kristen like, you know, grabbing coupons or something like, who cares? But like, one of the kids is on distance learning on Google Meet all day long and so right. it's not going to happen. And, the, but the, not the, only you were in a call, but those of us working from home mm -hmm. have this wholeheartedly. You got younger ones at home, and like they're watching their iPad quietly mm -hmm. while you're on the Zoom call. Like this is totally a thing. And you're like, if I take down the network, not mm -hmm. only going to lose my Zoom call, but now my kid's going to be like, oh, I don't have access to the internet. And like, can I have a snack? Can I have a drink? Can we go for a walk? Can I go outside? And, like I get, but like I got to get back on my call. <laughs> yep. And so <laughs> it's the awful. the other challenge that I've got, which. I'm not looking forward to is for six seventeen in we haven't been in the classroom in a, in a year. You guys use ubiquity mm -hmm. to build we, that class. We use yeah. ubiquity as an instructor because it's good shit. Because it's good shit, and mm -hmm. it can handle what we need to do for student load. Not only that, is I can remanage it remotely. For example, yes. when we first deployed it, the cloud's uh, a feature. Well, exactly. Because when we first deployed it, we had the uh, the cloud key management, and it's a little bit older stuff, but it Ooh. works great. Cloud key manager, and there was a misconfiguration in one of the networks that James was teaching about, and I caught it before he touched the taught the module, and I fixed it before he even knew it was a problem. And now I can keep an eye on the gear while he, somebody else is teaching the class and and all this feature. stuff. The cloud keys but, are basically Linux IoT devices that yeah, that but, help you manage your but, stuff. So I have three of these kits. That are in Pelican cases in my basement, and they haven't been turned on in a year. Oh, you got a lot of updating to do, my friend. But you know that. the problem is, is that I don't want to take and them out, and we may not use them again. Yeah. So. Oh crap! 
Yeah. In our first segment, uh, you know, Nick Nick uh, Perkoka made a statement about how Kraken. Uh, they like to sometimes think about how they're kind of a security company that happened to happen to do cryptocurrency, you know, blockchain, yeah. Yeah, blockchain. Cryptocurrency yeah. exchange. Yeah. And, and, and my thought then was, yeah, that's not necessarily a good thing. Cause I, you know, security companies in my experience aren't, aren't always the most secure. And in fact, sometimes they're most. They, they have some egregious. Yeah, it's like the cobbler in his children's shoes, yeah, right? Cobbler's, I agree. Cobbler's kids you know, always have the worst so, shoes. Right? So here we're yeah. talking about u- ubiquity, and you guys are going on and on about, oh, we love it. It's great. It's good stuff. You know, we're all security professionals, and we we swear by ubiquity, and yet ubiquity's got these. Uh-huh. It's not that yep. they have these technical issues. It's how they're handling it. Yes, mm-hmm. I mean, and, that, and agree, Jeff, because it's, it's from a third article. party. It's about disclosure. It's about uh, properly handling vulnerabilities and breach disclosure. And it's they're owning their shit. Yeah, yeah. Right. And 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 some of the the other ones too that you know, we talk about how how deep that this that this stuff went. Um, we're having a discussion on uh, a Slack channel that I'm in with some uh, an, an unofficial Slack channel for some folks. Uh, and you go and look at security trails. Uh, and the number of subdomains registered at ui.com mm-hmm. for ubiquity. And uh, the uh, total is 38,614 subdomains registered. Is that because you can get a custom subdomain? I don't think so. Interesting. Because they or say there are 85 million. The day, you could get a custom one that would let you publicly look at your network and or provide real-time infrastructure access in a snapshot view. Think of like the old football stadiums. They have some ubiquity stuff. Mm-hmm. They used to provide that, you know, glamour URL that would allow you to access oh. uh, some of the real time statistics of that. They no, said I don't that, think um, that had stuff in there. But Krebs says ubiquity shipped more than eighty five million devices that play a key role in networking infrastructure in over two hundred countries and territories worldwide. Yeah. So bi- clearly, we're not the only <laughs> ones in the hacker community that like. Ubiquity stuff. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. I I look at some of these that uh, like are are off the first list in security trails, uh, and there's stuff in here that's like um, anti cert serve us dot anaheim dot blog dot dev ui, uh, plano dot ov dot blog dot dev ui. Sorry, VPN dot plano. That sounds like takeovers. What that sounds. Uh, like. Well, see, it also says the attackers provided proof of stolen ubiquity source mm. code Antif- and disclosed it, and they wanted fifty Bitcoin, which is two point <coughs> eight million dollars. Yep. So uh, Tyler knows oh those God. numbers very well because Anti- <laughs> antivirus dot anaheim dot blog dot two hundred Bitcoin on a wallet um, somewhere. Sexy ass dot blog dot huge tits dot blog dot wait. Get out, no, what? hold on. <laughs> Go back. Did you say you had two hundred Bitcoin somewhere. It's between 100 and 200. So 50 Bitcoin in the Krebs article that was posted uh, (laughs) yesterday says 50 Bitcoin is $2.8 million. So we'll we'll shoot low and say there's $5 million on that damn jump drive somewhere. So Tyler, what are you doing this weekend, buddy? Why aren't you looking for You know, there's four of us that are going to fly out. Seriously, <laughs> and then we're all gonna—we're each gonna get a million dollars, basically, when we um, find it. Is that I, a deal? I don't have to fly. I'll just drive. <laughs> I'm in. It's a great. Deal. I'm in. I'll drive <laughs> yeah. over. I'll be, we'll be I mean, worst there. case is the five of us get to hang out for a week, right? Now, <laughs> that now, sounds, sounds like a good plan. Now, my question is, Tyler, do you remember the password for the wallet? 
that that may be another problem but i have a pretty good idea okay so and just because if we find the drive and <laughs> yeah, we find it and then tell it, like shit i can't remember password the one two three yeah. it's, it's one no knowing two, tyler knowing tyler three, it's probably 64 characters in length uh, joshua <laughs> oh my god speaking of joshua uh, totally off tangent here but um josh right uh stopped by the other Love day josh right how's he doing Have he's, do- he's doing great we he's, need to bring him into the studio he's uh he's doing some um project for his degree program at mm-hmm. RISD in photography and he did this he's got this crazy amazing neat project it's funny we were just talking about like hackers in our community that mm-hmm. have these hobbies that we we apply our hacking oh. kind of like persona and culture to so, like in like so you know, this, Dave Kenny loves mm. smoking meat. And now he loves working out. And Josh loves photography. And, no, yeah. that, now for Josh, the photography between the geekiness and the, yeah, the old time, a, yeah, yeah. There, there's an intersection there. Yeah. Uh, because specifically, he took two photographs of me. And it was one photograph with my mask on mm-hmm. and one photograph with my mask off using a modern camera that was built in 1990. But the lens <laughs> from a camera that was from the mid, from around 1880. Wow! Using 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 dry glass plate film. It's amazing. So, like the old school, that is, but it sounds amazing. The old school ones where they have that that squeeze box that comes in and out, and you have to put the black thing over your head. Mm -hmm. That's how I took the picture. It's amazing. So, and the point being is, is that he's using the technology that was used for taking photographs. During the last pandemic of the Spanish flu. That's amazing. Yeah, of people now in the current. Either way, he came over and as part of that, he'd been doing the COVID purge. And he had this, he had boxes upon boxes of gear. He said, do you want this? And I'm like, yep. yeah. And as I'm unboxing. Dude, the COVID purge is, the COVID purge is real. Because you go to donation centers sometimes in the Overflowing. past year. And they're like, we're not accepting anymore. Yeah. Like so many people but are we, cleaning out. We, yeah. we, we had the same thing. We waited six months before we went yeah. and donated stuff because that was the case. But these boxes that he gave me have all this incredibly useful gear. And as I'm going through it, I'm like, holy shit. I remember that. Because I remember that from that slide that he did in this yes. presentation yes. of yes. like, this stuff needs to be set dressing. Yeah. Like, do you remember the Banat Banat project? I do. What was I remember the name? What was that? <clears throat> so it was the discovery of Bluetooth um, uh, BD adders, the Bluetooth MAC addresses, by doing yep. some sniffing, looking for the first set of significant addresses. Because if you want to do discovery of non-discoverable devices, you need the upper address portion, the lower address portion. Mm-hmm. You don't need the first set, the insignificant. So he was trying to effectively brute force by finding out what was up there for all of those upper address portions yeah. by just sniffing Bluetooth. And he has a picture on a slide of this USB hub with these wireless adapters plugged into it. I have the hub with all of the wireless adapters plugged into it exactly as it was in that uh, photograph. Like, So cool. <laughs> like, um, there's... Like we talk about this section in the RFID stuff in the the Sans course, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh yeah, if you hack this lock and this door lock from this thing, and I'm like, the door locks in the box, Ugh. like right there from this. Sweet. Anyway, we need some set dressing. Any <laughs> uh, ubiquity? Anyone else want to weigh in? Like, so Lee. Uh, so so I was actually thinking, you know, you you're talking about the issue of who who's whose throat do you choke? Only you didn't use that term, and I was thinking. You know, when you've got somebody set up, 
when you set up that contract, did you let them take out the uh, indemnification clauses? Did you have the flow down on security requirements so you actually can go after the third party or not? I mean, it's still a battle, but I've been involved with some contract stuff in my day job and vendors don't like it when there's a, they, they want, they don't want, they don't want any risk of <laughs> downward fl fl flow to them. They'd or like to remove flow, those clauses. As the case may be. But it, you know, it, it, it begs the question that I, I, this week, you know, looking at a, evaluating technology and solutions, like what, what do you do? And there's, there's functional requirements, there's operational requirements, there's security requirements. And I, I just, at this point, like I, to me, it's amazing. And then there's PCI. And then there's oh, regulatory yeah, requirements as well, Jeff. That's a great point. And it's, it, they all factor into what has become a really complex decision. Like, do we buy something off the shelf? Do we partner with someone? Do we build it all mm -hmm. ourselves? But then it's all those places in between. And I'm like, so do we like build the front end application and then use a cloud provider in the back end and it, we end up in all these different decision points and like how much responsibility do you want to own what do you and i think what really well, for me like seals the deal is like what what are we comfortable with like where's our comfort zone like maybe we got some well, developers say, and we know we can own this piece and this piece is owned by the cloud provider and maybe we don't want to partner because like Excelion and in all these other cases and solar winds like ah, maybe we don't want to partner because there's supply chain issues but you know it, it, it boils down to Paul I mean those are all I want to I want to validate and affirm you those are all very very important considerations but at the end of the day it boils down to what's the most cost effective eg no, cheapest yeah, way to no, get no cost get there. is a huge factor it, huge and it reminds me uh, you know when I was back uh, Actually, in the first office that I worked in at, at NSA, I worked with uh, you know several people that were in the arm, armed forces, a couple Army guys, a couple Air Force guys. One of the Army guys brought in one time these aphorisms, you know, these you know slogans that are that are you know common and humorous in terms of army army life, and and, and one of them was, and I think it's appropriate here, um, you know. When you're in a firefight, never forget that, that your uh, M16 was built by the lowest bidder. Mm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's true. It, let, uh, let, let that huge, sink in. Yeah, let that sink into <laughs> cybersecurity, right? Mm -hmm. it, like it, Ubiquity uses third party because like, they made that decision yep. that many of us have made <clears throat> that is more, to your point, Jeff, right? Maybe the driving factor was it was more cost effective to go get that third party, have them provide that service and or product or both than it was to build it ourselves and or kind of put those pieces off. Like today I'm finding like I can use that cloud provider for that cloud native service and I got to just build this piece versus building it myself versus buying the whole thing or anywhere else in between. Right. Well, and it's interesting, uh, and and I I admit that I'm an old fart. And in 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 the time of uh, isolation because of COVID, my wife and I have been binge watching various shows, and it's a show that probably other people have watched already. But one of the shows we've been watching is The Blacklist. And yeah, the episode I've seen that one. About yeah, the episode that we watched yesterday had to do with this. I, I forget the name of the person, the episode number, but it was a person that was doing statistical analysis. He he, he was doing mathematical formula, formulas to determine who basically who should live and who should die, and yeah. 
Okay. It was fascinating. And I'm like, I like this guy. And my wife's like, oh, he's evil. He's. I'm like, no, but he's like taking a logical approach yeah. to, you know, you've got this yep. scenario, this, this scenario. Is, this is, you are now the second person that's recommended, Jeff, that you should watch this. Um, and it was one of those. I haven't gotten to it uh, because I'm totally, you know, I'm now four seasons deep into a, a six season show. And right. we're almost done. Sounds like a better well, uh, thought provoking than Cobra Kai. Because my family watches Probably. Cobra Kai, which is, it's hilarious in our house. Because uh-huh. like, there's three of us in our house that are watching Cobra Kai, and we're all kind of flopping back and forth. Because like, my middle son will just watch a whole season, mm-hmm. and I'm like, dude, like you're not waiting for us. <laughs> and so we're all different. <laughs> but like, I'm watching Cobra Kai, and I'm like, so like, pretty much table stakes. Every episode, there's a karate fight. Yep. I get that. Yeah, I get that. There's pretty, usually pretty, a flashback to one of the original Karate Kid yep. movies or reference to it in every yep. episode. Yep. Relationships are destroyed in some like bizarre, weird way. Or, that, ma- or built or in built. some bizarre, weird they way. It could never happen in that succession <clears throat> in, in real mm-hmm. life. Statistically, mm-hmm. that would never happen. And, and high occurrence of vandalism. Usually something's mm-hmm. being vandalized. And course Banquet. And course banquet, a lot of course banquet, <laughs> like more course banquet than I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> but, but but despite the the little Cobra Kai tangent, the point I'm trying to make is that you know, for all of the news and media coverage and all the things that we talk about, it all I mean pragmatically, it all boils down to a a financial decision. Yeah, and sure. Right or wrong. Uh, you can argue, and I certainly would be one to argue the the ethics of is money really the only thing that matters? But mm-hmm. pragmatically, most of the time in our world, money is the only thing that matters. So uh, you know, if you kind of start there, uh, you can you know you can you can make your opinions based on that. So ubiquity, uh, you know. My concern about them is not the their technology. It's not. It is to some degree where where the failure was. We all want to know what went wrong and how did it happen. But to me, it's more intriguing that they're they're trying to throw everybody else under the bus and deflect and you know point fingers and and it's almost it, it's gaslighting, as far as I'm concerned. Well, you, you, you wonder what, where, what regulation could bring to say that if you are a publicly traded company, what is mm-hmm. your responsibility for breach disclosure? Is that Should that be treated differently, separately? Should it be blanket breach disclosure? I think leaving it to the states, in my opinion, is a bad idea because then we've got no. you know dozens and <laughs> dozens of different breach disclosure laws, some that have it, some that do, and then there's, they're all different. Should they be federal? Should it be different for publicly traded companies? But the, the article ends with like how their stock is doing, right? I mean, their stock has right. gone up this year, and right. did, they, did they protect and, and sweep under the rug this breach because their, their stock is doing well? And of course their stock is going to do well. Everyone's working from home. Everyone's buying Wi-Fi gear. I mean, yep. of course, their stock yep. is going to do well. Yeah, but but that's but that's the ultimate irony is that you, you know you're you're saying that and and you're you're highlighting that in in one way that it, it's all about the finances. Yep. But at, at the end of the day, uh, you've got all the deflection. You've got the who did what, who's liable, who's responsible, court of public opinion. And and by the time we're done arguing it, it's like, well, what, what was the issue in the first place? 
Yeah, like I like would their stock price really? I mean, I mean maybe I, it takes a dip, but like product, tell your users like, look, change all your passwords, encourage two-factor authentication, mm -hmm. disclose what happened in the breach. Like people are going to still use Ubiquity. Like come, we've always said with breaches, like give some transparency. When you start to be deceitful, I think that further erodes trust. But it erodes trust largely with us hackers and cybersecurity folks. Maybe not with the. But does it who are really? If if you measure trust as is you know how well are you doing in the stock market? No, I mean, no, I, I think trust is how well you're willing to be transparent and disclose what happened. But what I'm saying is, you know, from a business perspective, I can see them saying, and I'm not defending anybody. I'm, just, you know, this is just the pragmatism. Who cares? Yeah. Who cares if we're trustworthy as long as our stock stock? stock yeah, I, yeah, I should just say, like our in, from business to business, our trust in ubiquity is still strong because financially they're a strong company. Therefore, it's not as much risk if we make an investment in that company because their financial performance is good. Well, and to tie it back to our, you know, our previous interview with uh, Rob, uh, you know, I, I am often concerned that a lot of the, you know, we talk about FUD all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, FUD. We all know that FUD isn't the way that you do security, and yet so much of our industry is based on FUD, including not to pick on Rob in particular, but just generically, you know, we have this whole industry of reporting and, and news and media, mm -hmm. whether it's tied to marketing and PR programs and, oh, we've got the solution. Our product will take care of you. Uh, you know, it, it, it all revolves around FUD. I mean, even this article, you know, again, it wasn't that ubiquity, ubiquity, sorry, I've been drinking too much, ubiquity. <laughs> <laughs> was actually compromised and the hackers and bad guys were actually stealing everybody's credentials and then going out and in accessing all their ubiquity customers uh uh you know Walk. products wi-fi products to go reap you know all mm -hmm. sorts of havoc on on god knows what it's the potential i mean that's fun yeah i mean at the end of the day that's fun tyler i want to get own your thoughts you've been a one of the huge proponents of ubiquity you dumping all your ubiquity gear or that's the hard part right like this is something that we've went back to as consumers in order to force change upon products or manufacturers and they have to see or feel it i don't foresee me changing any of my habits although it does cause me a pause on like how robust and reliable are the things that are underlying in my network if my network mm. design's great if i've got all the stuff i need and firmware gets popped or backdoor gets introduced via source code, like, what is my ability to protect against that? And this is, you know, this is a common supply chain attack issue yep. that most corporations are facing today. So I don't think I'll change my products because I still believe in them and I, I think they're the best out there. But this does make me really hope that there's some leadership change and they start to hear some of the voices that are you know letting them know this is not how they should do business i i'd, I'd feel better if they were more transparent me too yeah right and, and I, I think that's the, the the message that we'd like to send to ubiquity is that i mean dude, like ever, ever, no one's no one's a hundred percent resilient like that's you know no. so if you had some just tell us and we'll, we'll adapt right right Especially no, we're not. And and what we tend to value, I'm sorry, Tyler. What we tend to value, I think what we tend to value is the companies that are 
you know, the, the, they're just open book, full disclosure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've we screwed up. We yep. made a mistake. It was stupid. You know, we've we found the person that did it and fired him because you have to have a scapegoat. Somebody has mm-hmm. to go to jail. Kidding. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we tend to like the companies that just own it. We mm-hmm. all know that it's going to, you know, it's, it, you know, the law of averages is it's averages. It's going to happen to all of us at some point. All of us are going to fall victim. All of us are, are, are going to be in the in this in this spotlight, and and it's really how you react and respond is what you yes agreed is what you really fall down on and, and really what you point to. So in that context, ubiquity doesn't seem to be doing too well. Yeah. So Tyler, not but was scary. <laughs> the question to Tyler again was scary. Isn't now if you got a PF Sense firewall, are you in the same boat? Yeah. <laughs> you are right because they the way i understand the story is that wireguard wireguard's a cool project right yes jeff to your area of expertise they're implementing uh you know I- encryption and cryptography in creating this vpn protocol and they called it wireguard they were very forthcoming oh, if they're doing crypto then all the problems are solved right <laughs> but i i think they've been very in wireguard's defense WireGuard has been very transparent that, like, <clears throat> look, we're trying to build this and make it more resilient. Like, yep. don't go jumping on our stuff thinking it's the most secure thing on the planet because we're trying to build something yep. and we want more scrutiny. I think they've been they've done a good job at the WireGuard project for that. Now, WireGuard was built into the Linux system. And Linux kernel. And Linux kernel. And yep. I think also OpenBSD. And they uh, said, we want to support... Uh, it, was, it was not built into the OpenBSD kernel. I thought one of the OpenBSD developers was one of the ones that helped fix this because he had experience building it into OpenBSD? This is where yeah, yeah. one of the OpenBSD stories comes in. Interesting. Alright, so we'll table that. It was built in the Linux kernel. Yep. We can say that. PFSense was like, hey, we want to build this into the FreeBSD oh, oh, kernel. Okay, maybe I've screwed up Open versus FreeBSD. Yeah, so because okay. PFSense <laughs> is FreeBSD based yep. and they wanted to hire this developer yep. to go do it. That developer, holy crap, that's a whole story in and of itself, and and we'll Mm -hmm. get to that. Basically, the developer screwed it up, and PFSenses took the uh, pre-releases beta code from this developer, started building it into releases of PFSense. Mm -hmm. The maintainers of WireGuard looked at that and was like, holy crap, that is some crap-ass code, rewrote it. Yep, rewrote it. Rewrote it. Rewrote it well. Rewrote it well with one of the OpenBSD developers, with one of the WireGuard developers, and and one other uh, developer that had experience. Lee's got a a comment in there. Go ahead, Lee. I said it was Donafeld, who was one of the WireGuard developers. I was looking for the other guy who was from FreeBSD, but the two of them spent a week just cramming, cranking out fixed code. A lot of energy drinks and sleepless nights and, and, and cranked it up. Basically rewrote, the article said that I read, they rewrote every line of code basically because it was, Pretty much. It was mm-hmm. crap. Um, right. And came up with this re- release for FreeBSD. Yep. PFSense is kind of like now just running like air cover. Like basically like they put all their eggs in the basket of whatever. This that, one developer. This one Basically, developer. Whatever Turns out this developer has a, a criminal record went through some tough times he admits they didn't put like his best effort into it and now this whole kind of fight and i, re- I remember actually seeing a couple of weeks ago pf sense posting some articles mm-hmm. and me not fully understanding the story until this week where yeah. i'm like oh 
this is how this yep. all Kit, played Kit out. Kit Macy was the developer. Kit Macy was the the developer. Yep. Yeah. Right. And Kit Macy had changed his professional persona because of his past. So right. actually, <clears throat> to find the work he's done that's relevant in the past, you have to look for somebody else. Right. His quote alter ego, or uh, you know, I don't know what the yeah. whole thing was, but there was some part where he like legally changed his name from something else to Kip Macy, uh, yeah. and all of his previous work had been done under the previous name because the previous name was the one that had been to prison. Kip Macy was the one that was the landlord from hell. Yes, 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 yes. They'd gotten yes. some trouble with the law for the way he treated his uh, tenants, tenants on a building right. that they had purchased in San Francisco. Sawing holes directly f- through the floors of tenants' apartments, forging extremely threatening emails, uh, and forcing tenants out. Yeah. Yep. Basically made the building unlivable. Yep. Oh, yeah. They cut the floor joists. And why, why would you cut the floor joists on a property you bought to make it get your tenants yeah, out? I mean, in the code that Macy produced, apparently we had a laundry list of code quality issues, kernel panic, yes. security bypasses, and just spec, as they put it, spectacular in air quotes, buffer overflows. Mm-hmm. Printf statements deep in crypto codes. So, like, you'd be running this stuff, someone would connect to WireGuard, and like your logs would get. Spammed full Ma- friendship. I love this. Mazes of Linux to FreeBSD if defs. <laughs> but just, uh, it's just a, like a dependency friggin' not, uh, coding <clears throat> and dependency I like, nightmare. I like the ch- the validation functions that just return true. Yep. Like, what the hell? Oh, what, what, um, and what was that? That was on something, um, that was like on something crazy and important. It was like, it was like the, the algorithm that said, do I have to process this packet or not? It always returned true, so that means yeah, you like pack, it, it's process just every process packet. It. It's fine. Every packet. And, and WireGuard is becoming a pretty pretty solid project for implementing VPN technology. So much that Ubuntu included it in the 20.04 yep. uh, official release of Ubuntu. It's actually in the operating system. In the most, distribution, most VPN solutions say. now support it, like uh, yeah. private internet access, Express VPN. It's one of the few that can circumvent the Great Wall of China in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, uh, I, so, I also yeah, find... should, so should we process the packet? Um, we didn't cha- uh, have to chase down the use of the if yeah. You know, well, the only thing that it did was to return true, but it appears to be intended to check whether a packer, packet source and/or destination belongs to Wired Guards allowed IPs list. That's kind of important. You think? I also like the one that scared me. Like that seems like that would cause a lot of problems for a VPN, like, especially if you're trying to, you know, stand under the radar. Yeah. PFSense has been a great distribution. I too. agree. Although yeah, uh, you know, we mentioned many years ago uh OpenSense. Yep. And uh, there, I was have, a, there was I a there was a a a feud a feud, a, a disagreement mm-hmm. that spawned uh, OP, open, 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 OP, sense, OPN, OPN yep. sense, open sense. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I haven't gone back and looked at the project, but I think maybe that I need to, I mean, I've got to relook at firewalls after a couple of years and I've got yeah, a spare yeah, one right. and, and, and that type of stuff. And I'm thinking maybe open sense is, is the potentially the way to go. Just yep. to try I, something. I new. did some open, open <clears throat> sense stuff. Yep. And did you go back to, uh, and I went cause for stability. Really? And some features I went back to PFSense. Uh, recently, I've been experimenting a little bit with Firewalla. Uh, we oh. interviewed the founder of that project mm-hmm. on there. I bought yeah, one of yeah. his devices, actually. Mm-hmm. 
And, and I'm probably going to cut over to that. Now reading this article, probably sooner than later, because yep. I'm running PM my, sense my, at home. Like, just, you know, yep. that, my now, th- that, now my, my thing, OPSEC sucks, but, yep. like, we've talked about it on the show. Larry and I both <clears throat> mm-hmm. have built PF sense firewalls for oh, yeah. certain applications. And, yeah. and my, my thing is that the, the hard one for me is that I just need it to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to get some experience playing with some WireGuard coming up pretty quick here. Right. But, I mean, and, but and that the, being said, the, like, if you're running PF sense and you're keeping up to date... And you're not doing WireGuard on it, mm-hmm. you're, you're probably okay, right? Yep. Like if you're not implementing it, yep, I'm not. And yeah. and quite honestly, the big deal for me is that I do IPsec, mm-hmm. and I do IPsec from a bunch of devices, uh, including my iPhone, um, because I have services that don't work unless it comes from my home. Yep. Um, so you can have a VPN. Home. The deal with IPsec, and but a lot of us yeah. have been around it for a long time. It's 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 freaking complicated. It is, but WireGuard makes it a, a, a and, lot easier. But at but least but. now I can go into my iPhone and I can go. You know, uh, network, Wi-Fi, or sorry, I can go to uh, uh, settings, VPN, and yep. click the button, and it connects. Mm-hmm. Right. I haven't played with the WireGuard yet, but like, there's a WireGuard app. There is. Yeah. That, it's the same thing. Like, create tunnel, go. But yep. like, do I have to open the? I haven't done it yet. I do. I have to open the app and click connect, and then yep. I go back to my other stuff. Yep. You got to open the app, uh, connect. You input your profile with your keys in it, mm-hmm. and then and then click connect. Okay. Same thing. Yep. Yeah. Is it really She's that like hard, or is it really just syntax? It's learning a new syntax. Yes, it's it's configuration, Jeff, on the the client and the server. Right, it's still syntax. Syntax, and the yeah. big, the big advantage is speed. WireGuard definitely yeah, counts uh, a lot of speed, and obviously there's some <clears throat> privacy things there, but it's just a different way of doing uh, a VPN. My implementation is fast, and my validation checks return true. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of concerning. <laughs> but I, you uh, know, I, but I don't think it's a black eye on WireGuard because no. what I got from this article no, is the WireGuard no. developers really care about creating a quality yep. product, and they stepped in like, and did it the right way. Yeah, yeah. PFSense was kind of advocating for like we put all our eggs in this all our guys basket, and yeah. The big, yep. I think the big problem was was how do we ensure this that someone is actually validating this, like the the implementation to to the BSD stuff. And, like, you, know, and you know what? That, that was that was Macy's argument is like I released this code. I was burned out. I was tired. Like you know, YOLO. He, he's he oh, he owned it. You're right. He, he, he owned, owned it. it. He's but yeah. He says. Uh, but more importantly, I I uploaded this crap to the alpha release and it started getting implemented. But who's reviewing this shit? Like, clearly there's some issues here, but no one reviewed my shit. At some point they did. Well, clearly the the WireGuard folks looked at it and went, what the hell is this But similar to the PHP project, like, they caught that early on. Yeah. So I think, but I think in both these stories, it is a testament to open source that... Yep. Yeah, crap, crap makes it into our code bases, but we we catch that stuff. Yep. Like there's and, people watching, and, and, and they're doing the work. I mean, look, they're doing great work in the open source yep. community. And, it, and admittedly, Macy's stuff didn't make it to the the mainstream. It was in like alpha release, and that's where PFSense was pulling from. I should say that there has to be people that are doing great work, and the people that are doing mediocre or crappy work are there's a balance that the people that are doing great work looking after the project are like oh no we're not going to let that that happen uh-huh. like it makes to a certain point people catch it right mm-hmm. what but scares me source, more how, how do we have is, to validate is, closed source <laughs> but what scares me more is like the people maintaining the pseudo code right that has that vulnerability we talked about that you know as years and years and years has been in there and they're doing great work too but those are kind of more scary for me 
right? Like introducing whole new feature sets like we're talking about in the context of WireGuard and FreeBSD and in PHP, they can catch that stuff. Mm. It's the code that's already been written and committed that security researchers are doing an amazing job of stringing two or three vulnerabilities together to get code execution. And the maintainer who's a total ninja, ninja like Todd C. Miller of pseudo is like, ah, crap. Like, I didn't catch that. And I'm going to, and he, his credit, fixed it immediately. Those are the bugs that worry me more, for sure. Because there's so many other code bases and libraries that are in high usage and haven't come under scrutiny. And the scary mm-hmm. part for me is you can have really competent people maintaining those projects, but also really competent security researchers that are looking at it in a different light. Yeah. That's kind of scary. <clears throat> yeah. The uh, I, what's kind of a shame to me is they spent all that work fixing that Wiregate code for the free BSD release, and then it all got pulled. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, because I mean they got nervous, right? But, but right. I mean, I, the, I think that I think the really the, the good stuff will be back. Oh yeah, because well, sure. obviously the, there's talented enough engineers that mm-hmm. that can that can go do that, right? And mm-hmm. hopefully. What was his name that wrote the bad code? Learn from that experience. Yep. Macy learned from that experience and hopefully it wrote better code. Uh, so based on sort of what I was seeing at the beginning of that article that, that I was reading was that, yeah, he probably will learn, but he probably won't do that again. Because mm. like my understanding, it was like contract work. He, he was already burned. He was yeah. already burnt. No, he was already burnt out. Mm. Like he was basically, he had a deadline to meet. He, nah, he didn't want to do it. To begin with, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, what it sounded like. Yeah, and like, it, uh, hopefully, the lesson that he learns there is that you know, don't take you know, don't take on more than you can chew. Like, you don't take more than you can bite off, and you know, uh, like, learn to use your no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. That's the lesson, Larry. You're absolutely right, and I think many of us on the show and listening have been in that situation where sometimes we're wise enough to be like, no. Yeah. And other times we take on more, you know, we bite <clears throat> off more than we can chew and we're like, crap, we should have said no. Yep. And I think one of the tips I have for people in that situation is know when to ask for help. You know, yep. like maybe Macy should have been in that situation yep. and been like, to quote, to, yeah. to, quote, to quote him, I didn't even want to do this work. I was burned out, spent many months with post-COVID syndrome. I'd suffered through years of verbal abuse from non-doers and semi-non-doers, whatever those are. And the pro- in the project whose one big one-up on me is that they aren't felons. I jumped at the opportunity to leave the project in December. I just felt a moral obligation to get the WireGuard port over the finish line. So you have to forgive me if my final efforts were a bit half-hearted. Mm. <clears throat> no one to ask for help. Yeah, I think it's one of, no, that would be my recommendation. Yeah, no, no one to ask for help. No one to use your no. Yep. Um, yeah. And positive you know, thing: there it. are folks that are watching this stuff and in making these fixes. Yep. I think uh, again, the scary side is when stuff like this does make it into the mainstream open source code. Yep. Which is a great transition to npm netmask package. Yeah. Yep. And I've got a I've got a fun one that'll be a quick one to, to, to cover that I think will oh, be yeah. will be good you, to all of us. You've got some awesome ones in there too. I mean this was other big news this week. Basically the Netmask NPM project used by two hundred seventy thousand plus projects, vulnerable to octal input data. 
It sounds ambiguous when you think about it. Like basically, if you're trying to filter for uh, you know SSRF vulnerabilities, and you want to say like, hey, you can go to external stuff, but you can't go to localhost. It circumvents that filtering. Is the best way I can at this point in the evening. Ooh. This is the best way I can Ooh. I can think to uh, describe that. But it's interesting because it like it works in in both ways too. Like if you're trying to limit to local, you can also use this to Public. also step outside of that. Basically, it's the interpretation of an IP address as either octal or decimal. The way NPM was doing it was just to drop the leading zero mm. and interpret it as all as decimal. Turns out that's really bad. It allows for yeah. bypasses in both directions. Was when I read these articles multiple times over is my best kind of summation of it. Well, and and you know, dropping the leading zero and treating it as decimal doesn't even make sense. So, like in the example, you have zero one seven seven dot zero dot zero dot one was interpreted as one twenty seven zero 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 one. The way I believe it should work, and this is it's a brain teaser. Yeah. yeah. So if you ping. 0127.0.0.1 it interprets that 0127 as octal converts it to 87.0.0.1 which is an internet routable IP address so in that so if you ping 0177.0.0.1 it as octal 0177 goes to 127 right like I said it works in kind of both directions like whether you've got an app that's filtering like you can only have this parameter be external IP addresses, yep. or this parameter should only be internal IP addresses. Like you can basically so trick it, it so in either it, direction. So what I, what if I'm gathering it, here, based on the discussion, if it had a leading zero, it was interpreted as octal, as yeah. opposed to decimal. It should be interpreted as octal, but however, the, uh, in the the netmask code, it was basically stripping that leading zero. Right. Got but it. But le- interpreting a leading zero at all implies it's not looking at it help me out programmers as an integer it's more of a character i mean what what variable allows for the interpretation of a leading zero i guess that's my question so the root cause of the problem was netmask incorrection evaluation of individual ip4 octets that contained octal strings as left stripped integers leading to an inordinate attack surface on hundreds of thousands of projects that rely on netmask to filter or evaluate ipv4 block ranges inbound and outbound Um, also the original vulnerability disclosure read from that as well a remote unauthenticated attacker can request local resources using input data 0177.0.0.1 as mm-hmm. 127.0.0.1 which netmask right. evaluate to the public ip of 177.0.1 contrastingly remote authenticated or unauthenticated attacker can input data 0127.0.0.01 as 87.0.1 as local host, yet the input data is the public IP, causing remote file inclusion, LFI or RFI but, attacks. Yeah, and, and Jeff, I get where you're getting. It, like, what, 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 how are you defining the string to have it drop, oh, drop or process the leading zero? Right. I mean, this was my most optical, difficult article to it, explain on the podcast. It really it, is. Isn't it I know. Isn't it, isn't it an implied zero X? One two seven. Uh, no, that would be hex. That's hex. Zero okay. x would be hex. 
I, so, so I don't, I don't, like, I don't so think it, it sounds like a coding error in terms of what the, what the, what the type of the variable is. Yeah. Right. Yep. And I'm, I've had way too much bourbon to try to figure and, and it out. And, and, and Jeff, I don't have the answer, but I know exactly where you're yeah. going. Um, you know what I'm talking about. Right? Exactly. So I, I think about this to my, you know, RFID days and the, uh, the Proxmark. If you read a, uh, uh, a, uh, proc, uh, a tag with the proxmark uh, and at least in one of the types of tags if it's uh, the unique identifier starts with a zero so uh, I think back to 617 because we have an example of it uh, if the tag is uh, 0625 print it on the, on the tag itself and you read it the output says it's 625 hmm. not 0625 right because it strips the leading zero because, well, yeah. So, 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 so for octal notation, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to, you know, escape back tick the leading zero, whereas hex, it's a back tick of the, a backslash of the leading X. In other words, you escape it. Yep. And that's the indicator. So they're not checking for the escape. Hmm. So it basically, yeah, I, it's yeah. causes it to be interpreted. Um, you know, like, you know, X zero seven versus zero zero seven, but you want you need you need a you need an escape to tell it that this is not just a leading zero. Or le it's it's actually intriguing because uh, a I've been drinking and b it you know when you think of like the OWASP top ten and and you know common ways that you know uh, web applications are exploited in terms of the leading you know making making sure you're bounding your variables and not allowing you know. 5,000 characters to be input into a field that you think you're only going to have, you know, 10 characters or something like that. But who thinks about the leading characters? That's that's an interesting mm. problem. Yeah. And uh, I, I use, yeah, I was actually just messing around with the old BC tool, the basic calculator in Linux. And if you tell it the input base is eight and you take 0177 and say plus zero, It'll give you back 127. It's a real easy way to do a conversion. Mm -hmm. And so it was real obvious what they were doing. They were clearly interpreting it as octal if you had a leading zero. But boy, was that wrong. <laughs> Whoops. But the standing <laughs> question, Lee, is what variable is uh, is yeah? In, what's the variable know, attempting to as? interpret as an octal? You know, uh, or a, or you know, it even considers it might be an octal. Right. right. I, I, I want to transition from the from the tech because I know we're we're, I, we're we're late in the show and yep. this was the I've, wrong time to bring. I've got to quit. I do want I do want to give a shout out to Darknet Diaries. I know Jeff, you were in a, a fairly recent episode. Mm -hmm. um, Jack has interviewed the grumpy old hackers. He's done a couple of episodes with them. Wait, and are you calling me a grumpy old hacker? No, no different, Darknet, different Darknet, grumpy old hacker. That was a different hacker. episode. I was going to say, episode. no, Darknet Diaries did. Uh, so Victor <laughs> Gevers um, is someone who heads up the GDI Foundation, God where basically it. like he finds vulnerabilities on the internet. The um, GDI, goddammit? No, not that one, okay. but um, they are like Dutch hackers. But they are responsible for identifying the authentication and password heinous misuses in Trump's Twitter account, both <laughs> in 2016 and okay. in 2020. Uh -huh. Jack did a great job of um, documenting the story and the uh, kind of chronological history of, like, in 2016. They Basically, they figured out that his password was 
uh, you're fired. Mm-hmm. And then in 2020, like the saga continued to be like on our saga kind of theme that the password was MAGA 2020 exclamation point because yep. that was the same password that they used for the Wi-Fi network in some of the rallies for Trump. Also the same password that they had used for Trump's Twitter account and was able to log in. He got in a lot of trouble uh, for it. And I just want to make sure that we stick up for hackers like Victor that or the intention is to make the internet a better place. Yeah. It, it like went through a, a rough patch like it would stress any of us out um, and, and came out fortunately in the clear and ahead but like had to go sit with the Dutch federal authorities and like explain like no like like dude like I guessed the password I didn't do anything bad yep. I tried to contact Trump I tried to contact the administration the whole thing no one responded to me like in the whole the story is awesome so make sure you go check out that that documentary I, I, I would say and he was lucky that happened in Dutchland what is that Denmark um yeah. because he would not necessarily have had a similar experience if, if that had been the U.S., yeah. for example. He, yeah. he, he, I mean, he, he goes on the interview and was like, like, basically, he's like, I was kind of nervous. I was crapping like, my pants. I, I, I don't blame you, dude, and I respect you for doing that stuff to make the internet a better place. And he's one of those folks that really commits to that in, in like an amazing way. Um, so, yeah. worth a read. It just happened to Victor was one of the other vulnerability disclosure people that on the netmask mm-hmm. one but different victor <laughs> and i thought it would might have been the same victor but it wasn't so what is your vector victor what vector speaking of vector victor don't call me shirley um the, the one that i find is, is kind of fun because how many of us came from that the being coming of age of hackers in that we were beating games and getting more bullets and you know Oregon Trail and defeating DRM and oh, Oregon Trail. They go into that in uh, Steve Levy's book, yeah. uh, Hackers <clears throat> Here's the Computer Revolution. Yep. So yep. Activision forces an online DRM check into uh, their re release of Crash Bandicoot 4 for modern consoles, in which it needs to check in with Battle.net online, mm-hmm. even though there's no online content. Within 24 hours of release, uh, a cracking group, Empress, was able to defeat the uh, the online check in Crash Bandicoot's for PC version of its online check-in system. Hmm. 24 hours. How many mm-hmm. millions of dollars did that cost? Like... I don't. I, well, I mean, Crash Bandicoot Four, old game, re-release. I, there probably wasn't a ton of sales, uh, but enough. The big to have an anti-cheating. <laughs> well, it wasn't even anti-cheating. It, it was, was DRM. It was just DRM to DRM. basically confirm that you had bought it for your console, and it would check in with Battle.net. It was like, hey, do we own this? Yeah, I own this. Return true. Yeah. <laughs> but what? We've been there, right? Yeah, just take the function in the DLL and patch it so that it always returns true. Like, it doesn't even go online. It just returns true. I like how in your article they show, a, like, a image of a broken, broken CD. CD. Yeah. Yeah, it's a throwback. Yeah, totally, totally. Larry, but, I loved your story. One file, uh, right? I, I, pretty much. Like I would guess, yeah. I, I, I wanted you to talk about your story number eight because I thought this was awesome. And, Jeff, I don't know if you read this one, but this is... Wait. Basically, you show, and it's not even oh, plain text. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not a plain text versus ciphertext thing. It's like if you show enough of your key, 
Your RSA private key. What? You can you can that basically derive the rest of the key. Which, so, it, it, Jeff, I, I don't know if you read Larry's uh, story number eight. Larry's story uh, number eight. It it there's so many angles to this. One, yep. if you're a penetration tester, or really anyone looking into vulnerabilities, and you post publicly. Like, don't disclose anything. And this was totally a case where, like, mm. and I can see this happening. You're on a pen test, and you find a private key, and you want to show people, like, it's really bad to have your private key out there. Like, we talked to Nick yep. in the first segment about how, like, your Bitcoin wallet and your cryptocurrency wallets are all, like, based on your key. But, like, if you find someone else's key, like, don't post any yep. of it. And this was a case where a <clears> pen <throat> test was, like... Oh, like, like score! I, like I, I got totally the key, used, I used and I want to post it, but only redacted certain yep, parts they, of it. They redacted thirty-one out of the fifty-one lines out of the RSA private key. The telling part for me in this article is where they say the most difficult part of cracking the key <laughs> yes. was actually doing the OCR to go from the image to actually text, making sure it was good. Deriving the rest of the key is like twenty lines of Python code, like yep. not not like if that. <laughs> yep, because because effectively what I gathered out of this in the twenty lines of uh, the key that was still there included enough of the bits for them to recreate the entirety. Right, to like recreate the rest of the key based on prime numbers. Yep, the, the, yep. Yes. They, uh, they effectively recovered the primes that were used to calculate it because it was there. Which is amazing. Like if I have enough of a private key, I can just derive the rest <laughs> based on math. Yep. Essentially is what the article says. Yeah. And, and the big one here, <laughs> I that I, the, the big takeaway that I got from this was that uh, it didn't take them much for them to regenerate the entirety of the key. Based on the thirty-one, the, the redacted lines, but the hardest part was the, the OCR, OCR. <laughs> like, the OCR, right. and the time it took. Uh, you know, I'm and I'm speculating like here. QA, like I'm going to take the image and go from text, but I want to go back to the image and then verify but, that that like, I got every character well, right to my, get the. In my opinion, is is that they probably spent so much time, they went down that rabbit hole of the OCR, mm-hmm. and that they spent so much time with the manual tweaks they could to, get, to get. <laughs> almost perfect which they still had to validate from the image to the recovery that if they had just, just read off, had two people read off, reading it yeah like <laughs> but I, and i think I that agree, Larry. I, I think yeah. that is an incredibly valuable lesson to learn and i see yep. so many people participate in ctfs specifically the 617 ctf it's, it's recently really funny. is that so many this... people get down that rabbit hole of yes. like you give them so many hints and that that hint is like no it's over here and they're like i'm down this rabbit hole but also it's and I like have to go down this rabbit hole i could <clears throat> write software or a script to solve this problem or I could just do it manually, and you're like, hold on, let me calculate the time trade-off. Mm-hmm. And you're like, if I have to do this more than a couple of times, okay, I'll write the script because I can reuse yep. it, right? Do you know how many times but I've... But I have to do it like once or twice, mm-hmm. like, I'm probably just better off like editing the file manually yeah. or copying you, and pasting know? a million times to do it, yeah, right? Yeah, do you know yes. how many times I've taken this output file yes. and like, oh, like I did... <laughs> Yeah. Great, great one. I've done my said awk and grep and yes, you know, yeah. TR and all the stuff, and I've got it where it's almost, it's just, it's good enough. But for me to write a script to fix the rest of it, it's faster for me to, to just do it do man- manually. Yes. Even, yes. Even, yes. even though it is a thousand lines, yeah. 
in VI right. for me to do the keystrokes a, a thousand VI times. macro or just, you know. <laughs> no, it will take me longer to create the VI macro than it will me to do it for manually right. a thousand I can times. Just do the operation once and then hit the period and re redo it. It's, it's <clears> What yep. is the keystroke? It's like J to go down and hit dot and, yep. and just do that in all 500 lines. It's yep. quicker for me than to, to, to write the, it. To this point, yeah. conversation yes. with Josh. Right, today. Yeah, he comes up with a gun. Uh, a quotable quote from the discussion today with Josh was, just get it good enough and then said Oc TR your way to success. Yes. Uh, uh, totally, <laughs> totally there with you. So, uh, it, funny you should mention this. Um, somebody on Twitter, uh, Thinker, Thinker on, on Twitter yesterday or the day before posed the question, is it possible to teach people how to create a robust complex password? And that, you know, you can imagine that launched all sorts of, uh, uh, comments and, um, you know, somebody talked about, you know, whether there was complexity and, and, you know, they were going into the usual complexity and, and length and stuff like that. And I, I simply made the comment that, you know, length is much more important these days than complexity. Mm -hmm. you, you know, if you choose enough characters, you're good just from a, you know, from a brute force perspective. Um, long story short, that launched a, a lot of dialogue on Twitter, uh, with, with quite a few different people. But, uh, in 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 having this dialogue on Twitter, you know, and I was trying to throw in, yeah, but the but there's cryptanalysis. You know, you're you're talking about brute force, and you know, there was a lot of math flying around in terms of, you know, you know, calculating, you know, what it would take to actually break, you know, whatever, you know, the password based on, you know, we were getting into whether it was character based or word based and 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 passphrase based and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, uh, I, what I tried to convey, and, and, I, and I think it's pertinent here, is, it, you know, oversimplifying how you break this, you know, cryptography, you know, at the end of the day, you've got plain text, you've got a message, you've got data, and you're, you're trying to encrypt it and ultimately produce cipher. And the way you do that is you do some sort of, you know, math algorithm based on a key based on a key mm. so very very simplistically it's plain text p plus <clears throat> plus being you know any amount of algorithm mm -hmm. key equals cipher mm -hmm. so if you you know if you could think back you know you don't have to be a mathematician and i'm not but if you think back to algebra and trying to form you know yeah solve for solve x. equations yeah, right and solve the variable solve for x uh you know, if you've got P plus K equals C, and C is the encrypted message, which presumably is out there, it's been broadcast, it's been intercepted, yep. so you know C, you have C, uh, ultimately you're trying to get to P, but right. in, in, a, in a pure purest form, you're, you're, you know, there's P and there's K, you know, those are the two mm -hmm. unknowns, you, you have the C, so... The you know where cryptography and cryptanalysis comes into play is you know trying to take advantage of do you have a little bit of insight into what P is and you can figure out key uh, uh, figure out K and then extend that to get more P or do you can you <laughs> well, figure if you take out a, if K, you take enough K you get enough P which gets which gets mm -hmm. you P 
it sounds funny, but like you know, the Enigma machine. We've <clears throat> talked about that before. Yeah. One of the reasons why the you know the main reason why the Enigma machine was broken was because they started every message the Germans with Heil right. Hitler. Yeah, so and the, the, and and I will also add in combination with other phrases in predictable uh, messages such as the weather. Right. Raining, right. cloudy, it ties snowing, into, it, windy. What you're talking about, guys, it ties into my story number three about Alan Turing and my story number 12 about how someone hacked the Chick-fil-A uh, mm-hmm. coupon coding system. <clears throat> well, your 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 Turing article, I, we actually talked about that last week, I thought, you know, the fact that the, they he's, put him on he's a, showing up on the UK currencies, the 50-pound yeah. note or whatever. I, it, I, um, I, do, I do think that Security Boulevard did a great job in quoting a, a bunch of articles, and I think that the quote that resonated with me was, it's a way to let the UK honor historic people, but don't mm-hmm. pretend it's something, some big feat or victory for oppressed people, pardoning and putting him on a note doesn't undo that. No. I thought it was really succinct well, and, and resonated with me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we talked about that last mm-hmm. week. The fact that, you know, it, does it, you know, does the fact, does it make up for the fact that he was basically uh, castrated and, 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 yeah, you know, because it was illegal to be homosexual? I mean, there's a lot of issues there. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, you're but but Jeff, forward. go back to the, the your point on the codes, right? I mean, basically, yep. we're talking about code breaking. Um, well, cipher breaking, cipher breaking. But my story number twelve is is more about I think code breaking than an actual cipher where someone was trying to. I mean, they're basically trying to commit fraud to say like I can get a free something at a retailer if I can mm. figure out the coupon code, and right. found great success in looking at Chick Fil A. But I thought it was interesting. I looked at Google Images to find multiple receipts to get the the code that allows you to then go take a survey that allows you to go get the coupon code to get a free sandwich. And they like they broke down the code into the digits. Like mm-hmm. the first sequence is seven digits, and out of the seven digits, it was only this random. In the four through six digits, the first sequence will always be zero, and then preceded by x. You know. Basically, they found the pattern in the code to be able to develop a system that allowed them to right. allow people to get free sandwiches at, at Chick-fil-A. What I also thought was interesting is the great article. Go read it. It's my story number 12. Yep. But at the end, they basically say the uh, journalist that was like investigating this says uh, communications with the, the person who committed this fraud and they said hey it's been a while but sammy just got a cease and desist letter from chick-fil-a and now has to pay restitution for all Mm. of the free sandwich codes like basically sammy the (laughs) hacker was getting all the free sandwich (laughs) codes and then reselling them for like two dollars where a sandwich is four dollars that hacker or you know air quotes hacker uh you know criminal has to pay restitution. And my whole Did thing is like, crime doesn't that? pay until you have to pay restitution. Yep. And if you look at the restitution, the criminals have to pay, it's it's very, like they have to pay back all the money, sometimes plus damages. Like crime literally doesn't pay in all of these instances when you get caught. When you get caught. So, yeah. so if you, if the you law, get, if, the I should law say of if you get caught. Whether you yeah. get caught if you get caught. But what you that's, see is that's, a theme. That's, a, that's called a risk assessment. Yes. Yeah. But what you see in this article and many others about criminals, and we can even limit this to cyber, is like you you get greedy. You're like, yep. wait, 
how can I make more money? How can I make this bigger and more profitable? And they get greedy and they want to increase the, the, the payments. You know, I think Max Vision, a lot of the payment card, Jeff, to PCI, a lot of the, the uh, credit card fraud is about like, I'm not happy with making $1,000 a week. I want to make $50,000 a week. I want to, you know, they get greedy with that. They think they're businessmen and they know how to scale something. Yeah. So, like, Yep. yep. From this article, Paul, I think I, I think the analysis was amazing, and, I, and you know mm. this is this tr- tr- tells so much about some other things too. If you can observe lots of samples of something, you can potentially determine the yes. pattern. In this case, John the, Strand did some research yeah. on uh, gift cards. Yep. And same same kind of thing. Same, same thing for yeah. Wi-Fi Wi-Fi passwords. You've got a 16 character Wi-Fi password for some default device, and there's some commonality between that. Exer- yes. Observing multiple samples gives you. There's some static data that I can yep. observe. So for, yeah. exa- for example, in this one, uh, it was 23 characters. Of the first sequence of seven digits, uh, the first three represent the last three digits of the order number printed near the top in this case, uh, which are likely sequential. Uh, the fourth and sixth digit uh, will always be zero. The fifth digit is to be the revenue center, dine-in, carry-out, drive-through. <clears throat> the seventh digit is the register. Potentially, maybe one through four, one through six, so yep, forth yep. and so on. The second sequence is uh, the store number. The third and fourth of four digits apiece uh, is the transaction time, hours, hours, minutes, minutes, by followed by the date, day, month, month, You're day, right, day. Larry, it's totally like <laughs> Wi-Fi hacking, like yep. just breaking down the breaking number, it down. The, like, the, like limiting the possibilities yep. of and, all the different and, parts and of the... the last yeah. part was two digits, and the first two digits is the last number of the year the transaction was made in, nine, as in 2019, uh, while the last hasn't been determined. So you brute for well, zero through nine for the last digit, knowing all those other like, things. Right? Like this becomes in, really in, easy. In, this in, becomes a Python script. Yeah, and you're illustrating. Yeah. You're First illustrating job. why I'm here. Essentially, yes. Yeah. Jeff. I, I started exactly. out as a crypto. I started out as a cryptanalyst, but cryptanalysts are in essence hackers because yep. they look at a problem and they, see and the they say, and they they look for patterns, mm-hmm. they look for tendencies, and they exploit that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the p plus k equals c you know if you can predict or know what the p is you can figure out the k which gives you more p yeah mm-hmm. yep you exactly know, you know what i'm saying yep. or if you you know obviously if you got the k you can read p all day and and i mean i don't know if this is a super secret or not when, you know in the various offices that i worked in doing cryptanalysis on the operations side of the house where we were trying to actually break codes whenever we broke something and and therefore derived an underlying key if mm. and if, if and when we ever got key we had to turn that over to some group that would just look at the key because key in those days uh if they were machine generated crypto systems like the enigma machine mm-hmm. the the key no matter how random it appeared to be it was machine generated which means it was done by some sort of algorithm or some it was sort of limited by concept. randomness right it was it was well it was generated yep and 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 you could and you could and and you know there was whole groups that were focused on trying to figure out could, can we figure out how this stuff is being generated the best example to, to try, and hopefully people can understand is you know when i started doing hacking and started looking at uh, computer network security and started doing password hacking uh, a, there was a lot of uh, organizations groups customers 
army detachments that were trying to come up with uh, random password generators. Hmm. And they were doing it based on the Unix command RAND. Mm, random which function. isn't sure, not random. so random. Is which isn't random. random. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it looks good. My but, ass. <laughs> but if you understand how random works, you can reproduce it. You know, so, I mean, you know, literally, the, I, I worked in offices at the time where if we broke a message, you know, if we broke a code, broke a cipher, and we got the plain text message, nobody really cared about the message. We kind of threw it away. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But the key, if we got key, chunks yeah. of key, we had to turn that over to other groups that were doing analysis mm -hmm. to try to figure out if they could determine what the algorithm was. You know, was, it's uh, interesting, Jeff, having to work for a, a lottery company, right? And you think about how you want to randomize the winning lottery number, right? Oh, oh my yeah. God. You get into I, a lot I of creative discussions. How many times I've been sitting at a bar yeah. watching the monitor <laughs> on the, you know, the I, TV screen up in the corner with the ball bouncing, and I'm like... That's an algorithm. It's the I first time where they were like, I would love to look at where that. they were mm. like research was talking about like lava lamps, and I'm like, what are you guys talking yes. about? Like, I associate lava lamps with like hippies and like these very analog things that you plug in and generate heat and make all these things, <laughs> and they're like, no, like actually to make things truly random, one of the the theories is certainly yep. years right. ago was you got cameras that are looking at how the bubbles bubble up through mm -hmm. lava over, lamps. Over multiple that lava was lamps. a random number generator. And I there is there's a company here in the US, if I remember correctly, that has in their lobby mm -hmm. like several hundred they've lava got, lamps with yep, cameras. Yep, yeah. Yep. And yep. I can I cannot remember the company it's and somebody is shouting part. me at di in your yeah. Discord. You can probably car Google right it and find it. But yep. like if you remember the you know when PGP first came out and you were setting up your PGP keys they, yeah you, you had to type on the keyboard yeah well yeah or, or you move had your to mouse. move, move the your mouse, mouse around you had to you yeah. had to just randomly create move some in randomness a field to create the randomness the 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 irony is uh, that ran, you know there's very little random in the world yeah it's and, true. And, and I think we've talked about this before, but, uh, you know, if you flip a coin 10 times and you record, you know, what the results are for 10 flips, mm -hmm. you know, you expect five heads and five tails. Mm -hmm. You know, that's sort of the, the flat average. But the reality not... is you yeah. rarely get five heads and five tails. Yeah, but you do that and a it, billion times. Right. But it, 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 it <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm not a mathematician. You graph it out, you, you track it, and it becomes a parabola, and yep. you're approaching that 50-50 so, line. There's so many stories, but then I have to segue into Malicious Life <laughs> with Ray Levy. we want to talk about crypto! Malicious Life <laughs> podcast did a great interview, and we've interviewed oh. the folks from The Loft, but uh, Malicious Life did a recent interview with The Loft, and they were talking about Loft Crack and how that, mm. that was one of their first like products and stuff like that. Our mutual friend Space Rogue uh, mm -hmm. is is on that panel, and you know they're telling the story of the loft. And what I love about that interview is I think we all have either formed relationships or listened to different things or read books about like what happened at the loft uh, and kind of form our own opinions and stuff like that. But uh, to bring it back to loft crack, right? I mean that was their that was their their first oh. kind of product, right? They they sold, yep. they bought the rights back, and they talk about that whole story. Um, but that's very much about the landman hashes, right? And the what we're talking about in, in limiting well, that randomness, being able to split that password, uh, you know, up in equal parts for the landman hash is very much a an attack well, on crypto in, that we're we're is kind of a theme to what we're talking about. 
back in those days, in the early days, um, you, you know, Unix, which was very common, the passwords were limited to eight characters. I yep. mean, you could, and you not could salted a, either, you right? You could create a 12-character password, but they were only looking at the first, first eight, eight. And not salted. And, which and is it the, wasn't yes, salted, buddy. Right. And it was the, stored in a world-readable file. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> see, password, baby. Um, great. By, by the way, great the interview Windows as passwords, well. The window, what, what made Lovecraft you know, so interesting was the Windows passwords, and, and you know, I used to run Loft Crack. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, Windows passwords were, you know, also sort of based on an eight-character password, similar to Linux, but they were they were really two four-character passwords converted to uppercase. Convert converted so they, to uppercase. So Loft Crack would actually solve the first four and the last four sort of concurrently. It was yeah. fascinating, yeah. and in a great story too. You know. Joe Grant talks about being a teenager, you know, being in yeah. the loft. And, like, uh, in any point you listen to those folks that were involved in the loft in the early days, you glean something different. And, like, Joe Grant kind of describes the scenario of, like, I had to get there. I didn't have a car. Mm-hmm. I had to ride my skateboard. I had to take the T in Boston to yep. get there. And there was, like, shady neighborhoods where, like, teenagers pick on each other I had to make sure I got in. He's like, every time I got to the loft, I was like, oh, I'm glad I got there safely. And like, I love those stories about like how it kind of played out. And I love gleaning those different kind of details about how it played out. Like I took the tea, rode my skateboard to like that shady area in South Boston. Right? <laughs> that head shop. Was, and, right. <laughs> and like, like and, and you get so many bits of that from so many books, like and books and podcasts, right? And, and, and glean those different <clears throat> bits. Yeah. yeah. And like, so I, and I'm trying to remember what the book was and I can remember where I was, where I was listening to it. Well, the uh, intersection of CDC, Joseph Men did a great job writing the book about CDC. Yep, the CDC. And that, like, yeah, kind, that, kind that of was, the relationship the between Loft and CDC. Yep, that and was, was the member one. crossover. Yep, yeah. That was the, uh, it was the Joseph Men CDC. DC book that was had a bunch of loft folks and because I can remember where I was listening to that yeah. and, it, and it was weird because I was listening to that Joe Grand stuff uh, and you know some of that the the CDC politicalness nature of oh yeah of that later um, while I was actually fossil hunting outside of my hotel in Ohio mm-hmm. but like total mashup of different shit i'm listening to this tech book while staying at a hotel doing tech work having just gone to this little dive bar and had um gator stew and a be- and an amazing beer and now like looking at these cliffs outside my hotel and going out and fossil hunting and finding oh. fossils like <laughs> total mashup crazy of- stuff man. yeah <clears throat> um lee's number, uh, lee's number two lee's number let's two. go to lee's number two you know Poop jokes are not my favorite, but they're a solid number two. Solid number two. Trying to ban <laughs> Tesla cars from entering military. Uh, good segue, because I have a story about car uh, security as well. So it, it, what is it, Lee? China's not allowing Tesla cars to so, go into military facilities? like Kind of like the reverse of like us banning Huawei? Like China's doing the same thing? No, no. no. <laughs> this, well, this, is, this is actually... Um, so there's seven cameras on a car in a Tesla, and you can't turn them off. Nope. Right. So they're saying they can't come into a sensitive facility where they could record Ooh. information that you know sensitive or you know secret information. And the reason I put it in there is not because I want to say anything negative negative about China. I'm like, you know, our cars are recording a lot of shit right now, 
there's some places you probably don't want them around intellectual property now. Yeah, but why is why? But also, Lee, to your inside. point, like why is what's China hiding? Well, yeah, lots this, of things. I mean, but this is going to be a this is going to be a big problem in the future, no matter what, because of well, people don't realize the subsidy of what data cars are actually collecting and where they're actually making money. Mm. Like you're yeah. talking about roads, like there's a bazillion sensors on the Teslas. You can figure out what roads change elevation, how many bumps there are, mm -hmm. uh, what level, level of precipitation happened at this specific geolocation at this time, uh, going this speed limit with other cars around you. So not just video telemetry, you're talking about Wi-Fi telemetry, geolocation telemetry, road and Tyler, altitude telemetry. What it? What a creepy! I, I find it creepy. I I was in an creepy. accident last year, and when you fill out the police report, they ask you all of those things. What was the weather? Where were you? What were you doing at the time of the accident? Fill out the diagram. It sounds like in Tesla's case, they could fill out my accident report for me. Like the yeah, car they, yep. could report what I'm reporting. And yes. what, what, like, are we entering a future where Paul enters what happened in the accident and they're verifying that with what the vehicle telemetry <clears throat> is telling them actually happened in the accident? It's black could be, But also could be a positive mirror. thing, as we talked about. When we talk about, I mean, fraud is like a thing that mm -hmm. I, I find myself as a hacker, cybersecurity professional, like we, 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 we protest against fraud. Like largely what we do yeah. is like uncover fraud, right? Like fraud is a bad thing. I like to think we're we're good people that are uncovering fraud. At what point can that help that we do? But what at what point can help fraud as well? Like if we're honest people, that matches what we say, right? Like dude, it was raining. Here's how fast I was going. Like in a rough estimation, here's the turn I was making. Here's the like I stopped at the stop sign or not. And they're going to validate that against what my vehicle said actually happened. Yeah, no. Like if I'm an if any of us are an honest person i'm like i'm telling you what happened if someone wants to lie and commit fraud is that a a, a, a countermeasure to that and is that a good thing or a bad thing that's so i mean i think about i think about this from my perspective where i'm significantly more low tech in that you know my new to me truck Mm. has bluetooth so i can pair my phone yeah. with it and play but it doesn't have all books. that other telemetry. But it doesn't have all yeah. that other stuff but i've added uh, a dash a cam. dash cam yeah and more importantly i've added a dash cam and a behind me cam to the same dash cam right and right. it turns on automatically and doesn't turn off by the way so mm -hmm. when i park the car like it's still going is like, that an opt-in or like no do it's, i get a, a decreased insurance rate if i turn that stuff on well, that's that's uh, my and, issue and that, but yeah like that would be good to know if it is it but the still the point being is that it can it can work both ways like right. is uh, it opt-in until I've been in enough cases that there's a suspect I've committed fraud where now I'm driving a vehicle and I can't opt out. Yeah. Like, where's the line? Where's the line? That's the That's scary the problem. part. Like, yep. The car manufacturers are building it into the functionality of the CAN bus and the car the car functionality. Overall, like your windshield wipers won't turn on because it can't auto-sense the precipitation from the 10 sensors on your windshield. So mm -hmm. the entire car functionality is built around this telemetry data that's getting sent up and sold out to companies that may not be very good at protecting your Tyler, data. I've been in traffic court, and I've watched someone try to speak to the judge about the weather conditions and whether or not their windshield wipers and or headlights were on at the time. Oh, God. Like, what if we're progressing to a future where, like, that shit's automatic? <laughs> and should it be opt-in, opt-out? Like, that's kind of scary to me.
Well, Minority that's, Report. That's, yep. I was just going to say Minority uh, Report. Zoop, zoop, zoop. Yeah. Nope, clearly your car <laughs> clearly had... you did X, Y, Z or not, right? And then yeah. and then to add add a little bit more to that, like each one of these cars also has a VPN and data upload that goes to, you know, home base. Where's the protection and who's looking at what additional telemetry is in there? Or... But Tyler, let's talk about protection, right? Dodge is offering a software update that you got to Dodge Charger. Let's throw this out there. Score. Like, like, all right, I'm done. (laughs) Like, I think this is cool. You can get a Dodge Charger that is 485 horsepower or 707 horsepower. I'm just telling you right now, I want the 707 Uh horsepower. Uh Like, I don't know if I can afford the insurance and speeding tickets to come along with that. But they've got a firmware update that, like, when I drop it off to the valet or I arm it at night, like it's basically the What's firmware it? determines <laughs> this car is now three horsepower, not seven hundred and seven. Yep, limp mode. It's three horsepower. Limp mode. Limit mode. So yep. the exact opposite end of ludicrous speed. Right. So someone steals my car. Like, you, can you just imagine the chase <laughs> with the police? Like, I got three horsepower. There is no chase, <laughs> and I'm in a vehicle that could do seven hundred and seven. Like, but but like that's the a, irony, and and the iron the irony is is that I pulled into the gas station here uh, on my way to the show, and yeah. I needed I needed diesel in the truck, and there was a Challenger at the pump mm-hmm. and another one on the back of the tow truck that had clearly been repaired and was missing the front nose cone and I'm like <gasps> I want the one without the front nose cone because you know that's the fast that's the one. 707 <laughs> horsepower because someone fucked that shit up <laughs> all these manufacturers doing these electric vehicles and all this stuff and Dodge is like yes you can get 707 horsepower mm-hmm. like I kind of want that and you know what I can't afford a goddamn one of them I don't know. The charge is pretty affordable. I mean, no, it, no. horsepower to price no. ratio. No, is no. it expensive? You're you're no. you're still talking one of these new chargers with the the crazy horsepower. You're still talking between sixty five and ninety thousand dollars. Is that chief crazy horsepower? I don't yeah. know. But, I mean, yeah. but still, I mean, you're under a hundred grand for that horsepower, Larry. That's but pretty good. You could do the same in a vet. Is that? But is that less than a hundred grand? Mm, yep. You do a Gret for but vet for about ninety five. GTR is a whole lot less than either of those, but yep. And, and I mean, you and you could spend, you know, twenty five thousand dollars and put something in, um, you know, a semi restored, you know, a resto mod classic. You know, you're talking sixty five thousand dollars for a thousand twelve hundred yeah. horsepower. Or it can be. I mean, you could be <laughs> about a hundred grand yeah. or so into a Tesla that does zero to sixty in less than three seconds. And for about. I was going to say for about four miles, about the same as you would in that 12 hour, 1,200 horsepower, and you nail that 1,200 horsepower fuel engine with turbos and nitrous, and uh, boom, and your Tesla is still going. Mm-hmm. There's trade-offs to all of these there things. There is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But crazy they can control it with firmware. Yep. Right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Now, all you need to do is you need to hack the key fob. So that you can unlock it and unlock that mode of firmware because it's got to be something in the key fob. Because if it's software, it's hackable. It's a great yes, point, Yes, it is. Yeah, and if it's software, mm-hmm. it's hackable. And if it's wireless, it's hackable <laughs> at some point. So does that mean you can buy a regular oh. Tesla and hack it to, to go faster? If it's hardware, it's hackable too. Yeah, yeah, hardware and software is totally hackable. Yeah, everything great is point. hackable. Yeah. The answer is we should most really, likely. We should really end this thing. Yeah, yeah. two last stories. Uh, Windows 95 <laughs> Easter egg was discovered. Windows 95? 
So if you want to, if you want to be brave and go run Windows ninety five, you go to open its about window, select one of the files, type Mortimer, and the names of the developers will start scrolling. Apparently, that's like a Windows ninety five Easter egg. So that's that an was, Easter egg that nobody ever found. That no one ever found. Apparently, that? I haven't done extensive research, but there apparently, there's a ton one. of Easter eggs in ninety five. And uh, also, uh, I thought it was interesting that this feels like a hacker thing to me that it, someone got really high and was like, you know, if we were to age wine in space, man, like we were to send like a case of wine, a case of Bordeaux, I believe it was, into space and put that in the space station for a few years, but then also take a case of Bordeaux from the same year, from the same vineyard, right? Mm -hmm. And we would age it on Earth where there's gravity and then like sweet right like Dude. five years from now sweet we converge Dude. we get sommeliers sweet. that like understand Dude. all the different nuances and we have sommeliers tasting like which Dude. one's gonna what was amazing to me is like it basically sommeliers were like the space Dude. age one was way better <laughs> and i was sweet. like that's really cool like because if you think about it when you age a fermented beverage beer or wine yeah like <laughs> on earth, there's gravity that's pulling all the Sediment. particles and sediment <clears throat> to the bottom but in space they're free floating and like is there a difference i'm like that's a really cool experiment i i was kind of i was intrigued by this. i mean that's it that's an interesting experiment and you know for me that reminds me very much of uh one of the things that goes around in the uh the the bourbon type community yeah. and specifically one that uh deviant did where he the 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 deal was is that you could put bourbon in a barrel yep and age it send it to space no, no. You can put bourbon in a barrel and no, age but it. send that shit to space. Like, oh, once, it it space. The, like once bourbon hits the bottle, the aging process stops. I feel like with beer and wine, and there was some. Jeff, you were on that call with mm -hmm. age when we were debating like how yep. much it, yep. if it ferments or ages with beer or wine, is very different from whiskey. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really cool Adrian to think was about. Wrong, by the way. I, I, but I think it's really cool that if you were to take whiskey in a barrel, mm. take that barrel, send it to space. Have one on Earth. It's no. the exact same ingredients. Like, like take yep. half your batch, age one on Earth, age one in space. Whether it's beer, wine, or whiskey, you got to yep. do differently. Whether it's in but a barrel or a bottle, you got to do it with the, aging, you got yeah. the appropriate aging technique. Like, I thought it was really cool to think about because all of the particles in mm -hmm. down to the molecule level are going to be not succumbing to gravity in space versus succumbing to gravity like right. what's the i'm like that's kind of that's kind of cool so the the one that even did was uh you you put bourbon in a barrel and it takes on the flavor of the barrel right uh like that takes years can you speed this process up and one of the things that he heard about was if you take oak and your bourbon and you put it in an ultrasonic bath mm -hmm. can you speed that up so sound waves well, yeah, I to mean, influence it. Yeah, yeah, and the answer cool. and the answer was bourbon yes. when it's first distilled is clear. Yep. And, correct. And, and it's it the barrel, brown yes. liquor yep. because yeah. it, it, it it goes in and out of, it gets soaked up and yep. and, 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 and you can speed that pro and you can speed that and, aging and process, that process up can by, be speed up. So by yeah. ultrasonic His problem well, was is that his ultrasonic bath would turn off after like twenty two minutes. Mm. And he needed to run it for a couple of days, so he mm. created an Arduino well, thing to, 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 to book, 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 put book. sound waves. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, he created I an Arduino am, to trigger the timer. Yeah, yeah. I am, I am more convinced that what makes bourbon bourbon mm -hmm. is not as much uh, 
gravity as it is atmospheric biomer- biometric difference. Mm. Yep. So Bar- the, barometric barometric pressure, yep. which is what makes the the mm. you know the, the whiskey go in and out of the barrel. barrel. Yep. I which, love I how, love how science. Rep- and how I do love you rep- that in space i love science mm. that's applied to like making spirits better <clears throat> or beer I or like wine drink, i like drinking whiskey but we really i like drinking whiskey to. too and we drink a lot of it on the show <laughs> and i think it's a good point to end i want to thank everyone for listening and watching this edition of fall security weekly larry take us out over and out